0: Of your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14 will begin in verse 8 this morning. You can find that on page 957 of the Pew Bibles, page 957. If you don't own a Bible, please take that as our gift to you this morning. Again, John 14 beginning in verse 8. In 2012, a story that began on the football field transcended the sport and gripped the nation's attention uh, Notre Dame was finally good at football again uh, they would go undefeated and play for a shot at the national championship, that's not the story they had a star linebacker who was destined to be a front runner in the Heisman race, who was destined to be a first round draft pick that's also not the story In a three-day span, this man's grandmother died at the age of 72, quite unexpectedly. And then his longtime girlfriend also tragically died succumbing to leukemia. It caught the nation's attention, of course. And then in his first game back, playing in the honor of the two women that he lost and loved, he had a monstrous game leading the fighting Irish to upset Michigan State. Okay, move over, Rudy. We have a new paragon of inspiration. His heart, though broken, still fighting, still pushing, still winning. Manti, Manti, Manti. That's only the beginning of the story. News broke that this man, Manti Tao, his girlfriend, Lennon A., was not real. Social Security had no record of her death. Her university had no documentation of her attendance. The internet, as loud as it is. I had nothing to say about her origin, her upbringing, her friends, her schooling. It was silent. At first it appeared that the nation's darling player had played the nation. Soon it came out, what we know now is that Manty was sincere and sincerely fooled. He was, we would say, catfished. A family friend of the Teos, a man named Renaya, created an online persona, Lene. He slowly courted and deceived Manti. Uh, Renaya, in his words, loved Manti. Manti did not love Renaya. He thought he loved Lene. Few stories are more intriguing than one involving catfishing. Right, there's a popular show about it in the 2010s. Netflix has made a documentary about Manti's story. And for obvious reason, there's so much drama There's so much drama around the thing that we were made for, relationship. You have two people with similar, though wildly different desires. There's trust and deception. There's a clear dead end. At some point, there's revelation, conflict. Now, when you hear about a catfishing story, whether it's after the fact, whether you're watching it unfold, maybe you have a friend you suspect it's happening, what is the one thing you're thinking? What's the one piece of advice you're giving them? Tell me, what is it? You guys, you guys are bad friends. <laughs> no, okay. What's the one advice you'd give them? They don't trust them. What else? Check into, it. Check into it. Okay. The one advice you're giving them is go and see them. You have to meet them in person, right? Texting is not enough. A phone call is not enough. Pictures are not enough. These days, video is not enough. You must see them in person with your own eyes. Okay, if Manti saw Linay in person in an instant, I mean immediately, he would have known that the Linay he's seeing is not the Linay that he had been hearing about. It wouldn't have taken him like a two-hour interview and blood work to figure out what was going on. You see, sight gives way to revelation. To see is to know differently and in the highest possible way. It's intuitive, really. Think about it. If you've never been to the ocean, would you rather I tell you about it? Would you rather feel some of its sand? Would you rather breathe in some of its air? Would you rather hear its breeze? Or would you rather I take you there? Which would yield the highest possible knowledge and therefore the greatest experience? It's sight. To see is to know in a different way and in a higher way. I imagine anyone who meets someone online, be it platonic or romantic, is anxious to meet them in person. We were made for relationship. You would be wondering is this person really who they say they are? Like, will this lead to my satisfaction and fulfillment and happiness or my harm? Have I been tricked or is this the truth? your eyes in a way that your other senses will confirm or deny they will give you access to a higher degree of knowledge now we were made for relationship we were made preeminently for relationship with god one of the most natural questions that ruminates in the heart of people is not so much if there is a god we know that to be true but rather what is god like like is he as good as he's revealed himself in nature and in scripture Is his testimony trustworthy? As transcendent as he is, how can we even arrive at saving knowledge of him? If I were to meet him, would it actually lead to my good or my destruction? How can we actually know God in the highest way possible? What we see in our text this morning is that God actually gives us what we so desperately need, which is the gift of sight. He gives us what mere words couldn't do, God reveals himself by coming down in a way that we can not only hear and understand, but see and grasp so that we might know him and trust him. He is who he says he is. He gives us better knowledge of himself as God allows us to look upon himself in Christ Jesus. Keep that in mind as we read the text. John chapter 14, if you're able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture Beginning in verse 8, going through 14. Lord said, Philip, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time, and you don't know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And he will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name... I will do it. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Our big idea this morning, the one thing that I want to convince you of, is this. You were made to see God and to reveal God. You were made to see God and to reveal God. More simply put, you were made to know God and to make Him known. You were made to see God and to reveal God. Two encouragements then from the text this morning. First, see God in the sun. And second, reveal God by the sun. See God in the sun and reveal God by the sun. First, see God in the sun. We pick up, of course, in the middle of Jesus' conversation with the disciples in the upper room. If you're joining us for the first time this morning... Uh, Jesus is in the final 24 hours of his life before his crucifixion. Everything has been set in motion that will lead to his death. Now we saw last time that Jesus gave a promise to us, to his people, that though he's leaving, he will come again for us and take us with him so that we might be where he is. And then he assures us that we know the way to where he's going. Thomas quite honestly confesses, we don't know where you're going. Like, how could we possibly know the way? Jesus and clarified in verse 6 that the destination is the Father. It's the Father's house. And Jesus Christ himself is the way, the only way. Now, Jesus has been speaking about a future reality, a room or a place in the Father's house that Jesus is going to prepare that he's going to one day take us to. Okay, future reality. Verse 7, if you know me, you will also know my Father but it also has a present reality. Jesus went on, verse 7, From now on you do know him and have seen him. To have the Son is to have the way to the Father, not just later but now. It's to know him and to see him now in Jesus Christ. Now in this conversation, Doubting Thomas recedes, an eager Philip comes forward, It's like a WWE tag team of semi-confused questions that yield to profoundly good answers. Okay, verse 8. Lord, says Philip, show us the Father and that's enough for us. Jesus again says, from now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip, show us the Father and that's enough for us. Philip, speaking on behalf of the disciples, We want to see God. Now, Philip's desire and request puts him in a long line of saints who have longed for the vision of God. This is what we were made for. I want to give you just a couple examples from Scripture, two notable examples. In Exodus chapter 32, God tells Moses that an angel will lead Israel, will go before Moses and lead Israel into the promised land. In Exodus 33, Moses tells the Lord if your presence doesn't go with us then don't send us like we don't want to go with you what makes us your people is your presence what will make the land what it is is you like there's there's no point of this if you don't come with us it's a great request God promises to go with Israel Moses then adds to his boldness verse 18 of Exodus 33 Moses says Please, please, let me see your glory. Now the glory of God is like the godness of God. It's God in his radiance and splendor. Moses wants to, insofar as he can, behold the fullness of God with his naked eyes. God responds, verse 19, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he added, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. The Lord said, here's a place near me. You are to stand on the rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away. And you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. Okay, Moses wants what cannot, what he cannot see and live. Because he knows strangely enough that he lives to see this. It's what he was made for. God in his kindness gives him something. He protects Moses by putting him in the crevice of the rock. He condescends down to Moses to his level. He Shows him something of his backside, a kind of created, shadowy image of the being of God that is still glorious. It's still beyond any pleasure or vision that you could arrive to in this life. Okay, Moses wanted to see God. An angel leading them was not enough. God's presence even with him wasn't enough. He really wanted to live even if it meant risking his death. He wanted to see God. We see one more, Psalm 27. David famously penned, I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire. To dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. My heart says this about you. Seek His face. Lord, I will seek your face. David, I promise you, knows Exodus 33. That you cannot see the Lord and live. That you cannot see his face. And yet, what is the one desire of his heart? The one longing that we joined in singing about earlier today. The one want that every other desire is subordinate to. He wants the vision of God. Why? Well, David knows what he penned in Psalm 16. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Brothers and sisters, the holy place is the happiest place. This is why the Christian tradition has called the vision of God the beatific vision. It is the vision that makes us happy. The sight of God will fill us not only with knowledge, but life and pleasure forever. Think about the joy that certain visions give you in this life. Maybe you've seen videos of a, like a son being reunited, reunited with his father who's been serving away overseas. The joy that he sees when he sees his dad for the first time. The joy that you feel as well, almost participating in that joy. Even simpler joys like watching a child open a gift on Christmas. There is a joy awaits that will fill us with a vision that awaits us that will fill us with unthinkable joy. Now, vision here, it's helpful to know it's just a metaphor for knowledge and how we come by that knowledge. Again, it's intuitive, I think, that sight is the highest of all the senses. Like no description of a bride on her wedding day will satisfy the groom. Words aren't enough. A note from her is not enough. Holding your hand behind a door... As beautiful of a picture that it will yield is not enough. He longs to look at her. He wants to behold his treasure and his love in all of her splendor. Vision unlike any other sense allows you to take the whole of something in at once. Think about it. Words take time to communicate something. Vision allows you to grasp the fullness of something at once. Vision unlike your other senses, has the power to unite you and to transform you. There are some images that are so scarred for the good or bad in your mind that you cannot remove. The longer you look at certain kinds of things, it actually transforms you into them. John knows this. He writes in 1 John 3, Dear friends, we are God's children now. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will be like him because we will see him as he is. John knows this. Scripture ends in the climax. Revelation 22, 1 through 5, we re- recited in our scripture reading. Though man has been separated from God since the garden, we are with our God again and we gaze upon his face. The vision of God is where we're headed. When we see God, there will be no more longing, no more lack, no more unmet desires. We will behold as fully as we can the fullness of him who was made to fill us. We will be made eternally happy. Faith will give way to sight and that sight will will mean joy forever. Moses got this. David got this. Philip got this. Show us the Father, and that's enough for us. It's enough for us. Brothers and sisters, do we get this? Is seeing God enough for you? Is there some other vision that you are more enticed by, that seems more glorious? Your reputation, some degree, a certain amount of followers. Is there some kind of vision in your mind that is more satisfying than gazing upon the goodness of God? Show us the Father. That is enough for us. Now, Philip's desire to see God is good. Philip's request to see the father here is bad at worst, confused at best, because of what it reveals about his understanding of Jesus. It's as though he wants to push Christ aside and finally get to God. But as we saw in verse 6 and 7, there's no way to or saving knowledge of God apart from Jesus. And so Jesus comes in with a gentle rebuke verse 9 have I been among you all this time years Philip I've been with you for years you've heard my teaching you've seen my sign have I been among you all this time and you do not know me Philip do you really still not get who and what I am Philip I'm sure our teachers can relate to this you spend all year teaching your kids this formula those planets this map it comes time to grade their final exams and you might as well have spent all year watching The Sandlot. (laughs) Okay, this is not a failure on the part of Christ, but a symptom of the disciples' ongoing spiritual blindness and weakness. They're going to get it on the other side of resurrection and Pentecost. Okay, and Philip's request, show us the Father, it's actually nonsensical because it's already happened. Look at verse 9. The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? It's already happened. Our kids often do this thing after we feed them dinner. Okay, We feed them dinner, and then after dinner, they say, when's dinner? <laughs> it's hilarious. You love to hear it as a parent. We're like, oh, okay. We're like, it was that thing we just did. You remember we sat around the table there was a plate in front of you. We all ate that one thing you said you didn't want to try and we told you afterwards you'd be hungry. That was dinner. <laughs> You're like, oh, okay, but when's dinner? <laughs> okay, verse seven, now that you know me, you know the Father, you've seen the Father. Philip's like, cool, when do we finally get to see God? Philip, if I've been with you this entire time and you still don't get it, to see the Son is to see God. It's as good as seeing the Father because John 1:14. 14 in Him we see the glory of God displayed as the only Son of the Father. To see the Son is to see God. Now recall what John told us in the prologue, John one eighteen. If there's only one verse you memorized to kind of commemorate our time in the Gospel of John, I would encourage you to memorize John one eighteen. Okay, add it to your John 3.16. John 1.18. John starts, No one... No one, no one, no one has ever seen God. Now, it's a staggering comment when you consider the revelation of God in the Old Testament. Genesis 33, Jacob wrestled with and saw God. Exodus 24, the elders of Israel there on the mountain, they ate, they looked up, and they saw God. Exodus 33, we just read, saw the backside of God. Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet saw the glory of God in the temple. John says, well, they didn't actually see God, the uncreated one. We might say that no one has ever seen God undiluted. Okay, what they saw is a bit more like looking at an eclipse with solar glasses on. Okay, you're looking at it, but not with the naked eye. The infinite, transcendent, invisible, spiritual God who has no body or parts for you to look at. He is too grand for you to comprehend. Okay, so what Jacob and Moses and Isaiah got, it was good. It was good. But they were not looking at God in the way that God looks upon himself. That is not possible. John tells us no one has ever seen God. But, 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 the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side, implication, he has seen him, The one and only Son who is Himself God and is at the Father's side, He has revealed Him. The unseen God has made Himself seen in Christ. In fact, John, I think, is telling us the disciples got something better, yes, better than Moses got on the mountain. Better, yes, better than Isaiah got in the temple. In Christ, God became man to reveal Himself to His people. He gave them something to see. They saw God in flesh. To see Jesus is to see God. Now, Jesus goes on to explain this a little bit in verse 10. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Okay, I am in the Father, the Father is in me. We're going to briefly get a little teachy again. Okay, we're entering the sorry, I'm not sorry portion of the sermon. We've mentioned this multiple times in the pulpit, that the first axiom theology of theology is the creator-creature distinction. God is not a creature. There simply was and is God, and then he created something that is not God. God is not like us. right? We are dependent, we are frail, we are weak. We depend upon him every single moment for our being. It is in him that we live and move and have our being. Okay, God's not like us. You could say we're a little like God, but mostly not. And God is not like us. Isaiah forty twenty five. with whom would we even compare him to? Now what this should do is lead us to humility and to worship. Humility and to worship. It means that our words about God, they're true, but they always fall short. They can't not fall short of the infinite one. And in fact, when God reveals himself to creatures, it's a bit like explaining the laws of thorough dynamics to a seven-year-old, okay? It's not that they can't understand any of it, but they won't get all of it. Calvin says it's as though God lists to us in the way you speak to a child. God accommodates himself to our weakness. Jesus is doing that here in verse 10. He uses a spatial metaphor to give us something that we can hold on to, okay? How do we see the father in the son? He explains Spatial metaphor. Well, the Father is in the Son, okay, but this, this indwelling, it's not a one way indwelling in a way that the Spirit indwells us. The Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. There is a mutual indwelling of equals, okay, metaphorically speaking, Jesus is using spatial language, metaphorically speaking, it's as though the Father, the Son, and Spirit all occupy the same space, which is the divine essence. Again, this is a metaphor. God doesn't have body. He doesn't have a body. He's not material. He doesn't take up space. He's an undivided spirit. But what this metaphor is stressing, not only that they share the same essence, but they mutually indwell one another in a way that the persons are inseparable. We can make distinctions, but they're inseparable because they each are fully and truly God. Now, there's one major error you can Make by reading this text historically it was made in this text we call it modalism, which is to say that there's one God, but not three eternally distinct persons. Rather, the modalist says God puts on different masks, as it were, in time. So in the old, so maybe you got God the Father, in uh, the new or in the Gospels you have God the Son, and then in Acts, especially now we see God wears the Spirit mask. This is false. Okay, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. Jesus clearly distinguishes himself from the Father as persons. We see that in verses 10 and 11. Okay, so to see the Father and the Son is not because the Son is the Father. It's because they are the same God. One is Father, one is Son. We know there's one God. they are distinct as three persons in relation to one another. We know about the Son as we've seen that he comes eternally forth from the Father as his perfect wisdom as this perfect word, as this perfect image. Okay, to see the Son is to see the Father's eternal, necessary, natural, kind of crassly put it, copy. It is God as Son, such that when you look upon Him, it's as though you're looking at the Father. Okay? Similarity is not a strong enough word here. But the similarity or sameness and in mutual indwelling, it's especially seen, Jesus wants us. To know in the words that he speaks and the words that in the works that he does. So you look there at the text, Jesus says, The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Now, I won't belabor this point. We've seen it quite a bit in the Gospel of John so far. The divine Son is receiving all that he is from the Father. In time, he becomes human son. He only does what the Father says and does that's john 5 19. so kind of pulling this together the father and son they share the same essence they mutually indwell one another the son comes forth from the father such that in all of the son's actions the father is acting when the son speaks it's as though the father is speaking he doesn't speak or act on his own jesus's words are god's words jesus's works are god's works To hear and to see him is to hear and to see God. Now, why is this so important for us? We were made to see God. God has revealed himself clearly, as clearly as we creatures can grasp, in Christ Jesus and in Christ alone. Philip's problem unwitting or otherwise, is that he wants to set aside Jesus so that he can finally come to the knowledge of God. Our temptation is to set aside Jesus so that we can finally come to the knowledge of God. Or to modify Jesus so that we can finally come to the knowledge of God. Brothers and sisters, any kind of God that you get apart from Jesus is a false deity. There is no other way to the Father than the Son. The place that He has so clearly revealed Himself is Jesus. If you want to know this God, you have to know the Son. Verses 6 and 7. And if you want to know this Son, verse 10 and 11, you want to know His works and His words. And where has he revealed those things to us? In Scripture. If you want a foretaste of the vision that you were made for, brothers and sisters, start reading your Bible. Stare at the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, which is given to you in Scripture. Yes, we can learn about God from natural revelation. Psalm 19 tells us uh, that the heavens declare the glory of God, but they pour out speech without words. Something as glorious as the Grand Canyon or the oceans, what it teaches us about God, it's almost like uh, divine charades, okay? But then the psalmist tells us, Psalm 19:7, about Scripture. It renews our life. It makes us wise. It teaches us what's right. It makes the heart glad. Why? It puts us at the feet of the one we long to see with our eyes. The Word of God gives us a glimmer of the eternal pleasure that awaits because it, we come face to face with our God. The word gives us the word. The Bible allows us to see by faith the glory of God in Christ. It gives us a vision of what awaits. Brothers and sisters, you were made to see him. Does your life reflect this? Does it reflect it especially in the way that you spent time in your Bible? It is here that we come to see God so clearly in Christ Jesus. You were made to see him, and brothers and sisters, you were made to reveal him. You are made to reveal him. This is our second encouragement for the text this morning. Reveal the Father by the Son. Reveal the Father by the Son. We see this especially in the works that we do and in the words that we pray. So the Son reveals the Father and the works that he does and the words that he says. Here in this text, we see especially the works that we do, the words that we pray. Verse 11, Jesus says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Okay, simply put, if you're struggling with my words, that the Father, my, the Father and I are one, that's John ten 30. that the Father and I indwell one another, that's verse 11 of this text. Jesus is telling the skeptic just just stop and think about my works for a second. These aren't mere human works. Now John has given us seven in his gospel, but the most staggering, the most divine attesting sign was raising Lazarus from the dead. And not just because dead people aren't in the habit of rising, though that's true. It's because life itself is a gift from God and God alone. God alone has life in himself, John five twenty-six. And we saw in John eleven, Jesus willing, commanding even a dead man's rotting corpse rise to life. The works testify to his words that he indeed gives life eternal. But think about this. Jesus wants us to look at the works. What could possibly demonstrate his divinity more than him giving life to the dead? More than himself raising from the dead. More than him defeating Satan. More than him forgiving sins. What if? What if he used the formerly sinful, guilty, dead people to go forth and do the same thing? Okay, you know that someone has power or authority if they can do something impressive. What if they can also cause other people to do it? What if he had the authority to raise an army of the formerly dead to take life to the ends of the earth? That is a display of power. If you don't believe the words, believe the works. And not just the seven that John recorded, but the ones that are happening today. And if you believe the works already, then join in on the works. Reflect God. It's what you were made for. Jesus goes on, truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do the one who believes in Jesus will also do the same kinds of works reflecting him imitating him representing him it's an incredible promise it's not all that Jesus says the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do and he will do even greater works than these really We will do greater works than Jesus if we believe in him. It's such a staggering and unbelievable promise that Jesus begins with. C.S.B. says, truly, I tell you, your translation might say, truly, truly, verily, verily. In Greek, it's amen, amen. If Gen Z had a Bible, it would say, no cap. (laughs) All things to all people. (laughs) Now, you should never, ever, 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 ever read Jesus' words and conclude that he is wrong. If something's wrong, it's our understanding, perhaps our lack of faith. But you read verse 12 and you're tempted to think, really? Greater works than Jesus? Like when my friends run out of wine, they go to Costco for a new box. When their kids get sick, they take them to the doctor. When their friend dies, they weep and they weep and they weep and they try to move on. How can we possibly do greater works than healing the blind, feeding the masses, stopping the storm, and raising the lame? What's Jesus saying here? Most commentators in church history, and I think they're right, have understood this not qualitatively, speaking about the kinds of works, but quantitatively, the church collectively from Christ's ascension until his return has done and will do more miraculous works than Christ did on earth. And I don't mean just raising the lame or healing the blind, though that's true. We see that in Acts. No doubt, I think those miraculous works Christ gifted to some to do for a period, I think Jesus has something even grander in view. The work that virtually every other work pointed to. The most miraculous work of all, giving life to the spiritual dead. Now, you might disagree, but think about it for a second. Ripping a corpse from the grave is nothing for God, it is nothing for the God who spoke it into existence. It'll go on and die again. That's nothing. Think about what's required to raise the spiritually dead. God choosing to love someone who hates Him. It required the Son becoming man. It required the Son submitting to and perfectly fulfilling the law. It required the Son shouldering our sin. It required the Son bearing God's wrath. It required Him raising from the grave in such a way that He would never die again. It required Him ascending to the throne on high. It requires Him wooing the sinner it requires him pouring the Holy Spirit on the unholy. The forgiveness of sins. The unrighteous becoming righteous. The spiritually dead coming to life. This is the most miraculous work. Okay, multiplying bread is not difficult for God. Bread is not set in hostility against its maker. Multiplying salvation in Pentecost... And then churches from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, that requires God taking his enemies and making them his friends. It required the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the kind of miraculous work that God has called us to join. Jesus has called us to make disciples of all nations and it begins as we proclaim the good news that God himself has come down and made a way for us to move from death to life. The work that God has given us is the work of representation and proclamation. Brothers and sisters, you have been given the glorious task that actually mirrors the son's task on earth. You are to reveal God. You are his redeemed image bearers. You are his chosen and holy priesthood. You are to be a preacher of the good news of God that gives life in the gospel. Now, there are no doubt many reasons why we don't share the gospel. I think one that really handicaps us is that we are lulled into thinking that Jesus is just not at work today. Like the time of miracles is Acts. But he's not really doing anything today. And we're just kind of waiting on him. We're lulled into a kind of spiritual sleepiness. And so, in our evangelism and mission, we think that person's too far from God. We think her cultural pat- background is just too different. They already believe in a different religion. That country's too far. I'm just too weak. This is all true for us, it's not true for Christ. Now, look at verses 12 and 13. Jesus says, he that is the believer will do even greater work than these. Why? Because I am going to the Father. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In reality, these greater works are being done by Jesus. The now ascended and glorified Jesus is doing greater works than he did on earth. Only now he's choosing to do it through us. He's invited us to participate in the work. He does not need us. He does not need us. He has invited us to participate in the work and to enjoy its fruit. Our family tries to make really good food. Really good fruit. We grow some things. You know, it's one of the ways that we think as creatures, we receive gifts from God. We make things as His image bearers. We get to enjoy the fruit of it. Okay, Jess makes like incredible sourdough. If you've been to our house, you know this it is true. Amazing. The kids love joining Jess in that work. It's work, it takes time. It doesn't just happen. You don't throw it in the microwave. But they get to be with mom, and at the end of it, they get to enjoy the gift of warm, slightly steamy, buttery, strawberry jammed toast. It's glory. the task that Christ is calling us to is work evangelism and mission it is work but we tend to treat it more like cleaning the toilets rather than understanding that God our Father is calling us to participate with Him and to enjoy its fruit the task of representing God of the world in work and especially in word it's an invitation to join the family business to go to work with our father and brother as he is raising the dead, as he is giving sight to the blind, as he is turning idolaters into worshipers, as he is making former enemies his friends. He's inviting us to join a glorious work. And yet too often, like a child, we've busied ourselves. We'd rather... Watch commercials on a tablet, then join Father in the kitchen. The task we've been called to is glorious. In fact, Christ is the one who does the work. It is beyond our abilities. We are merely a vessel and tool. It is beyond us. But Christ gives us a promise. We're not left wondering whether or not God will use us. He actually tells us that the usual means by which he goes to work is not only us, but through our prayers. We see this if you look at the text, verse 13. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. We're met with another promise that just feels too good to be true. Like whatever we ask for in his name, anything, he'll do it. How many of us have prayed for a spouse we desire, have prayed for children, have prayed for promotion, have prayed for healing, only to still be asking? Jesus is saying whatever we pray for in his name, anything we ask in his name, he'll do it. I don't think he means this without exception. We even see this, in Scripture, the Apostle Paul tells us about a time that he asked God of something and God said no. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul writes, Concerning this, thorn uh, is a flash a messenger for Satan. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will... Gladly boast all the more about my weakness so that Christ's power may reside in me. Paul asked for something. God told him no, but he gave him something better. The opportunity to experience Christ's power residing deep within and the knowledge that God's grace is sufficient for all things. Something I promise you that Paul would not have traded. Again, I don't think Jesus is saying he'll do anything without exception. In fact, he gives us two important qualifications in this text. He says, whatever you ask in his name, and so that the Father will be glorified. One commentator put it well when he said that the glory of God forms the boundary for our requests. Like God is not going to honor your prayer to rob a bank or commit adultery or plot murder. They don't resound to the glory of God. The kinds of prayers that the father is eager to hear and that the son is eager to do are those that bring glory to God, which is to say they're those that reveal God to be who he is. That's what it means for God to be glorified. He is revealed to be as splendid as he is, as satisfying as he is, as sufficient as he is. Okay, brothers and sisters, if God answered all your prayers, what would it reveal about Jesus? Would it reveal to the world that he is the all-satisfying son of God, the all-sufficient savior of the world, or would it tell the world that actually those things are something else? The kinds of prayers that God wants to hear and answer are those that rebound to his glory, meaning they reveal God to be as good as he is. Do your prayers demonstrate that your highest desire is the vision of God? Or do they reveal that for you it's something else? So this prayer it leads to the glory of the Father and the Son. In verse 13 and 14, Jesus tells us they're asked in his name. This is why, quite literally, when we pray, we typically pray in Jesus' name. By doing so, we're recognizing that Jesus is the only sufficient mediator between God and man. That he is the one who will bring about what we're asking. But of course, a fixing in Jesus' name doesn't guarantee our prayers as though it's some kind of magical formula. Augustine is really helpful here in my studies. He says that we pray in Jesus' name and we call him Christ. Okay, what does the Christ mean? It means that he's king and he's savior. So when we're praying in his name, we're praying to submit our wills to his, why he's the king. We're actually praying also to submit our plan to his, why he's the savior. We're asking in humility that God would answer our prayers if they resound to the glory of God. If it leads to our sanctification and spiritual good and if they advance his kingdom. Oftentimes, of course, we pray for good things from God. Good things. A stronger marriage, a child, a healing, some kind of friendship, a job we can use our skills in. But for reasons that we do not understand, God says no, or at least not right now. Why? He's acting as our Savior and our King. He is willing what is actually best for our holiness and, yes, our happiness. He's putting us in a position to get more of him. He's giving us an opportunity to mean what we say, which is that our one desire is to see him. Augustine says he's always savior, always savior, even when he answers with no. He's saving us from something we don't need right now. It wouldn't be for our good. And yet so often we pray in Jesus' name, but really we mean in our name. The goal in prayer is not to beat God down until he aligns his will with ours. As though we know better for the world and for our own lives. The goal is not to get God to soften his plan for our holiness, but rather to increase our desire to see him. Now imagine being ill, really ill, and going to a skilled and experienced physician. And as soon as you walk in, you demand a particular kind of surgery or medication and they tell you no actually that won't do anything that will harm you that will kill you okay this is what you need and you start arguing with him no trust me i need this medication i need that surgery no that literally won't do anything that one will kill you this is what you need when we pray we pray in Jesus' name recognizing that he is the king and he is the savior we recognize that he is our God. Now, I don't want to qualify this so much it feels as though praying is pointless. I think what Jesus is really getting here, you almost get the sense that he's begging us. He's pleading with us. He's incentivizing us to pray. Whatever you ask for in my name, anything you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father will be glorified in the Son. Jesus wants us to pray to him, to ask of him, to be used by him, that he might do greater things now through us than he did while he was here on earth. He wants us to pray to him. Brothers and sisters, what do your prayers reveal about what you value most, about your relationship with Jesus even? Our problem with prayer is that we've so domesticated it that we've made it weak. Piper uses this illustration. I think it's in Let the Nations Be Glad. He says that prayer is intended to be like a walkie-talkie, a a wartime walkie-talkie. Like you use it to call in support. You need an airstrike. You need some kind of backup. It's used to advance the mission of God, but we are using it to order food. Like, hey, we, uh, we ran out of those, I don't know, whatever we eat on the front lines. Can you send us more? Still an important thing, but it's a, it's a misuse of the thing that God has given us. It's like using a tank for Uber. Jesus has given us prayer, at least in part, so that we would ask him to do greater things. To bring the spiritually dead to life. He is eager to do those things through us, yet so often we are not very eager to ask him to do them through us. Brothers and sisters, what does your prayer life look like? Are you asking God to give you opportunities to have your neighbor over for a meal so that you can know them? Are you praying, God, will you give me an opportunity to share the gospel with them? God, will you open their eyes so they can see not only their sin, but your goodness and your mercy? God, will you save our children? God, will you give me the boldness to address this sin in my family? God, will you grow our church through conversions? God, will you raise up more pastors here to plant healthier churches God will you raise up missionaries from our midst God will you send me as one of them brothers and sisters Jesus is eager to hear it all he wants to hear about all of your burdens carry them all to Jesus but do not neglect the fact that he has given us prayer as a starting point for mission he wants you to ask him to do great things today If this is not what your prayer looks like, like, why? I would encourage you to even talk about it over lunch today. I've been so convicted as I've studied this text about how little I pray and with what faithfulness I lift up most of my requests. Jesus is urging us to pray the kind of prayers that turn the world upside down, the kind of prayers that bring the dead to life, the kind of prayers that push the gates of Hades further and further back into the pit the kind of prayers that leads to our purity with which we need to see God, the kind of prayers that takes the gospel to the nations, the kind of prayers that strengthen our brothers and sisters struggling around the world, the kind of prayers that help one another fight their sin. We were made to see God, that is to know Him, and we have been tasked with the calling, the incredible calling to reveal him, to be a display of his power, and it begins with prayer. And do you see the way these two things work together? Those who long to see Jesus are eager to speak with him. And the more they speak to him in prayer and hear from him in his word, the more they long to see him. And the more they see him, the more they want to show him off to the world that needs him. The more we stare at him, the more we become like him, The more we become like him, the more we reflect him. Brothers and sisters, we are made to see him, to show him. A church that does not show the world the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. A church that doesn't pray to God to do great things through it is hardly a church at all. Brothers and sisters, what are the kind of great things that you can ask God to do through you this week? What then are those great things that you can attempt to do for God this week in faith? Jesus has invited you to join him in the work of revealing God. Let's pray.